Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Today, uh, we're coming to our third principle in our Emotionally Healthy series. Obviously, when we're in this extraordinary season of, um, of lockdown, and although we're physically more restricted and hemmed in, uh, I don't know if it's just me, I, I don't think it is, it feels like inevitably God's using that to actually bring up a lot of stuff in us that kind of maybe wouldn't come up otherwise. And, and week one, we looked at the first principle from the book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. The first principle was look beneath the surface, which is basically asking, what are we feeling? And then why are we feeling it? And the second principle we looked at a couple of weeks ago was then breaking the power of the past. And I hoped what we saw was this connection between those first two, that they're not just like separate principles from the Bible about emotional health, but they're really interconnected. It's really fascinating. And I would say that you can't actually know really why you feel what you feel unless you know something of your past. You can't do number one without doing number two. So for example, I shared my own story. I was a little bit vulnerable. Um, that the older I've got, I've noticed emotions like guilt and shame and fear and anxiety. And then when I've asked myself, why do I tend to feel those still? Um, I came to the realization that it was because actually in many ways, when I was younger, I shared this a couple of weeks ago, I remember hearing this like, voice it wasn't a real person but i heard this sort of lie come into my being which was compared with your big brother and big sister who are so creative and impressive and i was the youngest tom you're basically blank there's nothing particularly special about you i i kind of i remember hearing that somehow in my mind and and what i did then with that was i then started to almost prove that wrong prove that voice wrong by living a life of increasingly um, trying to be in a hundred different ways successful, uh, not blank. And um, I responded really to that voice as a, as a young child by kind of forming something of a glittering image, uh, a Tom that would be presentable to make me lovable, to make me not blank. And uh, I even shared um, that this kind of, it's almost like a heart, I guess, ultimately of some pride and defensiveness that leads to this kind of way of living that I don't know if you remember, but I, I mentioned a time when I was up in a cabin near Visalia and I was just having some time of reflection and the Holy Spirit started to show me in kindness, but incredibly painfully, 68 in total different ways that I had tried to respond to this lie that I, I had no idea was still there 
as a young child that I was nothing special, that I wasn't, um, I wasn't impressive and I had to be spectacular in some way. 68 ways that I unconsciously tried to kind of construct an impressive, successful Tom. So from things like being British, um, I would take pride in that subtly, unconsciously, or still having most of my hair, or being a pretty good dad, or I don't know, having led a relatively large church at some point in my life. And as, as, I, as I was up in the cabin, I felt the Holy Spirit just saying, these are all the ways that are just beneath the surface that have all come from you believing that lie that compared with your big brother and sister, you're not very impressive. It's extraordinary. I couldn't believe that for so many years I had unconsciously been collecting these things and using them to help me sort of go against that and to ultimately try and be someone who was somehow vaguely impressive. And therefore you see the emotions. If you live fundamentally in that kind of proud and defensive place where you're, you're subtly um, needing to be the best at everything and to perform and to be successful um, from a heart of kind of pride and insecurity, the emotions of course make perfect sense. Those emotions I mentioned at the beginning, like fear and shame and guilt. All of those emotions in my heart make sense if I am trying to be lovable by being somehow impressive in my life. And then the Holy Spirit, as he showed me thing after thing after thing, Though it's very painful seeing these things, and, and, and you'll have your equivalents, right? You'll have your things that you know you can. Even some of you, like bravely on camera, said, "Yeah, this is the thing that I tend to. It's my fig leaf that keeps me from feeling kind of somewhat naked before the Lord. The thing that makes me feel um, impressive or successful and strong to kind of counteract that lie." But this, the truth was, was as those sixty-eight things were highlighted. And as God highlights those things in your life, the reason he does it is not in some kind of um, mean-spirited way. When God shows you things that you cling to to make yourself feel more successful, to counteract feelings of insecurity, it's actually because it leads to an incredible sort of new you. As you can confess, almost with a, you know... Um, a slight embarrassment, but a healthy awareness of these things. These are the things that I tend to need too much. What happens is, number one, you might want to write this down, you start to know a joy you can never know any other way. When you are able, in a sense, to lay aside the, the, the grasping for a glittering image from pride and defensiveness, needing to be the best, when you can just sort of sit back, as it were, knowing that your father loves you and sees you and you don't need to push forwards. What happens is rather than guilt and shame and fear, emotions like joy and peace start to come as you settle into the truth that you are the beloved of God. Number two, God starts to actually get much more glory in your life. When you can confess, do you know what? <laughs> I'm actually average. I am genuinely average. And I don't have to be the best. I can be average 
because I have the affections and the smile of the Father, no matter what I do. Number two, God gets glory, which is just huge. It's a whole sermon in there. Number three, you become safe to be around. When you start to live, not in pride and defensiveness, but in brokenness and vulnerability, or as Jesus says here in in the passage that you've got before you, Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the most important sermon he ever said. And the first thing he ever said in that important sermon was this, you're blessed if you're poor in spirit, which means you're not rich in spirit. To be rich in spirit is, is to be basically full of yourself. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about your inner being. It's saying if you're rich in spirit, you're proud. You're like the Pharisees. You're defensive. You don't need God is what you think. That's what it is to be rich in spirit. And that's why Jesus says the beginning portrait of what it is to be a Christ follower is to know I'm poor in spirit. I need God. If I try and make myself rich in spirit through my achievements or my, these identity things, I try and grasp them, I will be not blessed, which is actually the opposite of that. And right, that's cursed. God says there's a blessing in that poverty of spirit when you're broken and vulnerable. Uh, so there's all these blessings. Number one, there's joy. There's number two, God gets glory. Number three, um, you, you, you're safe to be around. You see, if you're rich in spirit, proud and defensive, so even subtly, it's amazing how people can pick up on it. I've seen it in my own life so many times. If I'm just kind of big Tom and I come across someone who's not in that place, I can just like run roughshod over them very subtly. They don't feel safe around me but if i'm not living in a place of pride but it's more there's that broken and humble and vulnerable tom that god's wanting to bring her in people feel safe around us and that is for us as a church is just huge to be sanctuary to each other you know to be in your group and to be able to be broken and vulnerable means people feel safe around you it's huge it's huge and and the fourth benefit and why this is so important is because you actually have an internal authority that you can't get any other way. When you start to see your glittering image, all those ways that you try and be spectacular for what they are, those 68 things over there, and you start to see yourself as, in a sense, just that at one level average person, and you can laugh at yourself. And you can know that you're not going to be ever the best at anything ultimately. What happens is um, you, you start to grow in authority because the reason we, we lack authority in life is when we desperately want people to like us. That's why we lack authority. And so when we are those who actually go, do you know what? I know I'm not particularly special. I'm dearly loved by God, but I'm actually just average. You can then speak into other people's, you can see their attempts at being glittering because you've, you've known it in your own life. You can spot it, you can smell it, you can sense it, and you can lovingly help them to see that at the right time when God calls you to that. Oh, you can challenge them. That great part of agape love that we don't often do, we can challenge people. And we're not in any fear of how they respond because ultimately we don't need them as much to pump up our glittering image because we know that we're nothing special, right? So you see this incredible 
gradual growth in internal authority. So there's so many benefits to living in this place where you do actually, um, you're able to not live in a place of pride and defensiveness, but in brokenness and vulnerability. But the key question is this, is, is how do we actually live there, Tom? How do we stay there? How does it become something that marks you as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter throughout your life? Not just occasionally when you glimpse it and you feel those rare moments where you feel free from the exhausting life of trying to prop up that glittering image. How can you actually live there? Well, there's three steps we're going to look at briefly today that I think will help us from scripture. How do we, how do we be blessed in our poverty of spirit ongoingly, Jesus? There's three things we need to see, I think. Number one, we need to see this issue and its importance in scripture. We need to see it in scripture and be convinced of it. Number two, we need to see it, what it looks like in our own lives. What does Tom Shaw or Mark Sylvester or Sean Baldwin look like when I'm broken and vulnerable or when I'm proud and defensive? We need to be familiar with those two different portraits so we can spot it. Number three, we then need to see the Father's smile over this whole enterprise. We need to know his grace as we become vulnerable. So first of all, then, the first step to living in brokenness and vulnerability is we need to see it in scripture. And there's two reasons why we must be convinced of this, not just in a moment on a sermon, but actually in our heart. The first thing is because to to become poor in spirit, like Jesus says, to become someone who is marked more by brokenness and vulnerability is very messy. Okay, so you might want to write that down. Maturity in biblical terms is not about becoming more neat. <laughs> you become more messy. So contrast Paul's uh, introductions to himself when he's a younger man writing his epistles and he says things like, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Ta-da! It's kind of impressive. Then the last introduction, I think it's in 2 Timothy about himself. He says, Paul, the chief of sinners. You see that the older he's got as a man, the more he's aware of his own mess, his own brokenness, his own vulnerability. It's not something now that he's trying to always run away from. And this is important because honestly, in the countries in which we live, um, you being really vulnerable um, is not always what people are used to. And so if you're not rooted in the fact that, well, if no one else gets this, because everyone else is still kind of giving me shiny version of themselves, but I'm leaning into vulnerability, even if no one else kind of around me gets that and thinks, oh gosh, this is all a bit messy. Biblically, I'm convinced that I'm a bit more like Jesus, my Paul, like how God wants us to be poverty of spirit. So the, the first reason we must be convinced scripturally is because it's messy and that makes you feel vulnerable. And it's, and it's something that can, uh, it just needs that rooting from the, the word that this is a good thing to pursue. Number two, here we go. It's the big one. Pain is the main way we become broken and vulnerable and stay in a place of brokenness and vulnerability. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, 
ever since Adam and Eve ultimately became proud and defensive and said, we want to go our own way. What you see in Genesis 3 verse 19, look it up in your own time, is the introduction of what we can summarize as thorns and thistles, which is basically pain in your life. In your workplace, God said there's going to be, there's going to be thorns and thistles in the ground. Adam, as you try to work, your work is always going to be marked by a certain level of difficulty. And in your relationships, there's going to be difficulty. There's going to be some pain. There's going to be some thorns and thistles. And then you see this exact same idea hundreds of years later in the Apostle Paul, when Paul literally says in 2 Corinthians. So I think Tom just froze. Uh, we're working on uh, getting him back in. So if you can hold tight for just a minute. Hello. <laughs> I think someone just didn't agree with me and just like, ah, oh, let's boot him off. Uh, where was I? Um, Something about, not me, where did thorns I get booted? Thorns and thistles in our lives. Thorn, was, it, I about, was I talking about Paul? Yeah. Paul and yeah, okay, so Paul saying, I've got thorns, a thorn, a messenger from Satan to keep me from being too conceited. So this is really big for us. I don't want to super spiritualize it, but it's interesting that mysteriously Zoom breaks at the moment. I'm trying to say something that I think we often don't hear is that pain, thorns and thistles are often God's way of wanting to keep us from pride and defensiveness where we're trying to preserve that glittering image to feel good about ourselves rather than the point of thorns and thistles in our life is to break us, to humble us, so we remember that we are weak and needy and we turn to God. There are three classic responses that we tend to demonstrate. You might want to write this down as well. Other than being broken by the pain, by, by, rather than being humbled by it. There's three classic responses we see in Scripture when those thorns and thistles come, because nobody, nobody naturally goes, oh, there's pain in my life. I'm just going to remember that I'm broken and needy and pray to God. We all do the wrong stuff first, normally. Number one, we tend to flee. We run. We, our life is marked, if this is us, our life becomes frantic. We run to other things that make us feel better about ourselves and we try and run away from that pain that's what i was doing with those 68 things running to other ways that make me feel better about myself is that you do you tend to flee when there's thorns and thistles in your life difficult things number two we can fight it this means our life is marked more by resentment we we dig our heels in at those difficult things in our life. It's not so much being frantic, but if this is you, your life might be marked more by a subtle frustration, anger. Thirdly, we can hide. And what that means is we, hit, we feel the pain, but then we just smile and we say everything's fine. And so we become fake. So there's three classic kind of wrong responses ultimately to these thorns and thistles that are designed to make us humble and broken and vulnerability. We tend to either through, we get frantic by fleeing or we get frustrated 
by fighting it and just saying, oh, you know, we just, we can't get over these difficult things in our life. And it becomes a source of just resentment and anger rather than asking why and, and bringing it to, to God. Or we just hide and our life is marked by fakeness. So God wants us to be a people who reinterpret thorns in our life, thorns in our relationship, thorns in our workplace, thorns in our life. In a sense, this is what I'm trying to say, thorns are kind of here to stay. You know, that God, when even, I was just reading with Israel this morning, when, when God was disciplining Israel and he was getting them ready to go out to, um, to exile with Assyria and Babylon, they fought it. They fought it and they were trying to lean on Egypt and they were trying to lead on other places. It took a long time for them ultimately to surrender to the process of God. We tend to misinterpret the things in our life, the thorns and the thistles. We, if we don't understand God's way, we tend to fight and flee and hide from the things that God is trying to use in us to actually humble us so that we can be free from our proud and defensive glittering image. So Pete Scazzaro says this, he says, what might be those thorns in your life? Maybe it's a struggle with an addiction that forces you to be vigilant every day. Maybe it's an emotional fragility with a tendency to depression or anxiety. Maybe it's loneliness as a single person or widow. Maybe it's scars on your soul from an abusive past. Maybe it's childhood patterns of relating to other people that cause you to feel desperate for change. Maybe it's a physical disability or cancer. Real temptations perhaps to anger or resentment or judgmentalism. Listen, our world treats weakness and failure as terminal. It says you are a loser, but God says this is a universal human experience cutting across all ages, cultures, races, and classes. It is, in a sense, my gift specially crafted for you so you can lead out of weakness and brokenness, not your own strength and power. I would... I, all I, could, I would love to talk in great depth about the last few years of my life and Josie's life but, and how we have read this stuff and gone, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But how we've started to, I guess, experience more levels of this than we've ever done. And it's a sensitive thing to say, isn't it, that pain and brokenness is, is, is meant to be used by God. But I do think it's basically true when Josie has struggled with depression when I've struggled with anxiety or with emotional ups and downs, when there's just been pressures, physical pressures and moving nations and moving to big cities, etc., These are thorns and thistles. So let me ask you this question. What are the thorns and thistles in your life today? And how are you responding to them? Just take 10 seconds in the silence of this call just to answer that question. And you're like, what are the thorns and thistles, the things in your life that he might be trying to use to cause us to be broken and vulnerable that instead we might be fighting or fleeing or hiding from? Just take 10 seconds.
And what I'd love us to do is just, just two or three of you, unmute yourself and just with one word, you don't have to tell us what the thorn is. Can you just be vulnerable and tell us whether you're fighting or fleeing or hiding, if you resonate with one of those three, just for a moment of interaction? Just unmute yourself and just say, fighting or fleeing or hiding. Fighting. 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 This is great. Two more. Can I I make up a new one? I'm waiting. You can indeed, Sarah. (laughs) Sorry, Tom. I'm like waiting. I feel like I'm open, but I can't figure out what it is, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Great. One more. Resenting. Hmm. Thanks. That's great, Hannah. I just want to pray for us before we move on. Let your sweet presence continue to come. Thank you for the honesty on this call. Thank you. Oh, that you don't want us to have no reference point for these thorns, but you want us to submit to the the breaking that you do bring. Lord, I pray, keep reframing us to see this your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to see it secondarily then, not just in scripture, it's legitimate, it's painful, but it's vital. We also need to see this this issue of brokenness and vulnerability in ourselves. What does it actually practically look like, Tom, for me to start to lean one way or the other? What does health look like, Tom? But also, what does unhealth look like? Well, I can't do any better than just reading out, take me five minutes, the, the incredible convicting and encouraging table uh, on page 118 of the book and i just want you it's going to come up amanda is going to screen share i believe thanks for doing this uh, work kelsey i'm putting this down for us i will i'm going to read it out and you can just follow along it's just a table that describes this is pete Scazzero, what he looks like when he's more proud and defensive trying to be a glittering image man or when actually he's in a place of greater humility and vulnerability and therefore experiencing joy and authority and compassion and God's glory. So if we can just have this up, just I'm just going to read through it and just basically ask yourself this one question, which column do I most resonate with? Proud and defensive, i.e. false self, glittering self, or more broken and vulnerable? Here we go. Number one. I am guarded and protective about my imperfections and flaws. I am transparent and weak. I disclose myself to appropriate others. Number two, I focus on the positive, strong, successful parts of life. Or I am aware of the weak, needy, limited parts of who I am and I freely admit failure number three i am highly offendable and defensive or i am approachable and open to input number four i naturally focus first on the flaws mistakes and sins of others or i am aware of my own brokenness and i have compassion and i am slow to judge Number five, 
I give my opinion a lot, even when I'm not asked. Or I am slow to speak and quick to listen. Number six, I don't get close to people. Or I am open, soft and curious about others. Number seven, I keep people from really seeing what is going on inside of me. Or I delight in showing vulnerability and weakness that Christ's power may be seen. Number eight, I like to control most situations. Or I can let go and give people opportunity to earn my trust. Number nine, I have to be right in order to feel strong and good. Or, I understand that God's strength reveals itself in admitting mistakes and weaknesses and saying statements that I was wrong. Number 10, I blame others. Or, I take responsibility for myself and speak mostly in the I, not the you or they. Number 11, I often hold grudges and I rarely ask forgiveness. Or, I don't hold people in debt to me and I'm able to ask others for forgiveness as needed. Number 12, when I'm offended, I write people off. Or, when offended, I ask questions to explore what happened. Number 13, I deny, avoid, or withdraw from painful realities or I honestly look at the truth underneath the surface even when it hurts number 14 I give answers and explanations to those in pain hoping to fix or change them or I am present people in their pain and I am comfortable with mystery and with saying I don't know. 15. I have to prove I am right when wronged, or I can let things go. 16. I am demanding, or I assert myself respectfully and kindly. 17. I'm highly self-conscious and concerned about how others perceive me. Or, I am more aware of God and others than the impression I am making. And number 18, I see people as resources to be used for God, or I see people gifts to be loved and enjoyed. Oh, goodness. Painful, I find, anyway. Um, let me just show of hands who here would resonate slightly more perhaps with the proud and defensive column vulnerability okay great and then if you would actually tend to resonate in all honesty with more of the broken and vulnerable column show of hands celebrate that okay many of you not quite sure that's fine <laughs> both yeah both as Josie says so I find that super helpful because it kind of is really specific. I've actually printed that off and put it in my Bible and I just quite often go over that. What, 
what am I more like? Can I see it in myself? Can you see it in yourself? What it looks like when you're in that place of humility and vulnerability. And there's a, there's a just that you don't need to control. We don't need to push forwards. We don't need to be the center. We don't need to be spectacular. We can just rest. Oh, friends, how the world is yearning to see Christians like that. How it's, it, 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 we don't have to be, I don't think, this spectacular strategic. Da, 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 da. I think if we can just know what it is one day at a time to live in that place of brokenness and vulnerability, of neediness and weakness, where we are able to give glory to God. Man, the fruit that comes from that, the fruit of joy, the fruit of peace, the fruit of um, being able to laugh at ourselves, the, 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 the authority we can have to challenge people who are still taking themselves desperately seriously with no fear of, of their rejection, because ultimately we're not with ourselves either. Oh, this is gold. This is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Tom and the, the kingdom of TomShaw.com. This is, this is, this is worth, I want to say this is worth fighting for, friends. This is worth, I mean, I, you know, the, the picture we've lived with of Eustace from um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, Narnia, where he's the dragon, or this, it's actually a later book, isn't it? Where he's the dragon and it's Aslan like Dawn pulling off Dawn Treader. There it is. You know, ripping off the skin. It feels like that. It, it's not easy, but the Holy Spirit, Jesus wants to daily invite you into a place of running, of, of running to him from a place of running from him. And there's no, there's no greater story to finish with than in Luke 15. We need to, this, my third point is this, is what do we do when we see ourselves in that place of vulnerability, can we feel quite, you know, exposed almost? The fig leaves have been exposed and we're, there we are standing somewhat metaphorically naked. What do we do when we're so used to all those fig leaves of performance and success and pride and defensiveness? What do we do? We need to see the, the, the smile of our father more and more and more. I love Luke 15. You know this story, many of you. It is a Jesus told to convince you, to convince me when you're on this journey of, of allowing the Father to show you your pride and your defensiveness, um, to, to agree with that, to not fight it, but to quickly submit to the thorns and the thistles in your life. The older we get, God wants us to, to spot that process quicker. So we don't fight for years and years and become some embittered old person in our years where we, 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 we see ourselves as a victim, but actually we're increasingly, we're able to surrender to God and those things in our life that are difficult, but ultimately lead us to a place where we can, we can agree with him in his love for us. And in Luke 15, you probably know the story. There's a father with two sons and both of them are proud and defensive. The older one is proud and defensive in his moral life. The younger one is proud and defensive in his reckless life. And the story revolves in many ways around the younger son who runs off, who blows his father's inheritance. And he gets to the point that we're kind of talking about today where basically he realizes is if you pursue a life without God at the center, is that ultimately you just come to the end of yourself. And, and it's a life of pain and difficulty. And in that place, God wants us to turn to him. And I love, I love this picture 
verse 17, the son, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. That's his coping mechanism. His co- I'll just become a servant. And so he got up and went to his father. And it says, but while he was still a long way away off, his father saw him. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son starts his spiel that he's got ready. Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth and against you. Sorry, I'm no worthy to be called your son. And the father's like, shh, 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 stop, stop. But the father said to him, quick, bring the best robe. The image of, of this young son it's like a visual image of when we, when we live that life of pride and defensiveness, it's like it leads to rags. And in Rembrandt's picture of this famous story that the younger son is in rags, his hair is disheveled, and it's a picture of life when we don't have the father as the true center. He says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is, is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And this story is the, the beautiful picture of how do we actually, how do we live a life where we don't need to be spectacular and we can just, in a sense, become happy with not being the center and not clinging to things that make us feel brilliant. You see, as we let go of that old life, there needs to be something that we, that we grab instantly and quickly that is 10 times greater, a greater affection, a greater glory than that old life. And the old life can be very appealing. Tom Shaw still clinging to trying to be a church leader or, you know, a good dad or, you know, they're not bad things. But when that's where my soul is functionally clinging, if I'm going to be happy to admit weakness in those areas, I need to know that overwhelming love of a father who loves me in my fragility, who loves me in my brokenness, who loves me despite my weaknesses. Amen. I need quickly to know him because the reality is the world around us won't securely love us in that way. The Christian faith is based not on trying to be good. It is on realizing that you and I are weak and fragile. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans tells us. All of us. And if we're proud and defensive, we just don't realize it. And we still subtly think we're still pretty good and doing God a favor by being his, his followers, if you're a Christian here today. But to realize, oh my gosh, I am so fragile and weak and my motives are so often mixed and I'm so prone to feel like I need to save everyone. And that's such an, that's an offense to God. When I live like that, when I start to see that old Tom trying to creep in again, I need a strong and mighty Jesus that is so much bigger than that old life that whispers to me, come back, come back, come back. Does that make sense? We need a, a father who is tangible and real, not just in your heads, but in our hearts. And, and I remember, and with this I'll finish, I remember when I was 36, I had, I was a church leader and at first, the first few years, great. 
And then God had started to bring in a season of thorns and thistles where the church stopped growing. Uh, people wrote bad things about us in local newspapers. Um, lots of changes happened in our world that were just very difficult. And at first I fought it. And then I started to become hyper activity and trying to work hard. And, you know, I started to flee and to just be busy to try and solve these problems. And then I, I would just hide and just be fake. Yeah, it's fine. It's great. And eventually, eventually I got to the point where as God was removing the fruit, he was exposing that I had become addicted to the fruit more than the father. And as he withdrew those, that fruit less and less, as I was pruned, it exposed more and more and more my addiction to things that made me feel good and how actually functionally I had been so far away from my father. And so it took me actually getting physically ill, getting irritable bowel syndrome because of my emotional lack of health, my drivenness, and getting to the end of myself. And I remember in those two months when I had this sabbatical, um, for the first time learning about silence and solitude and rest and letting go and not needing to be the center. I remember learning, um, at first it was just the most difficult thing. Having a day or two of silence or like retreat was just like terrifying because I was so addicted to the old way, the old proud and offensive Tom, but gradually this new quiet voice started to emerge over those years, over those weeks. And um, I remember, this is a strange image, but it, I, I remember after a few weeks of the adrenaline starting to come down and life becoming quieter and me starting to hear the voice of Jesus for the, in a way for the first time in so long who loved me despite my, my, uh, my pride and my defensiveness and my energy, my, just my drivenness from trying to search after things that made me feel better about myself. And as he just exposed all of that, I vividly remember having this image. Um, you know when, you know, a stereotypical image of a, a busy housewife at home with small kids, and then when the husband gets back, you know, she's there she is in the kitchen working away and he comes in the door and she's just like, oh, darling, I'm so pleased to see you. Of course, that always happens in every life. But there's the picture of just like the joy of the return of the partner. And I just felt, I know it sounds crazy, but I just felt God saying, Tom, I've so missed you. I've so missed you. You've been busy, so busy trying to prove yourself to be lovable and impressive years and years at your core, really in your head saying you love Jesus, but really the things that drove your engine were all to do with that insecurity and you trying to solve it by being strong and impressive and, and just spectacular and all that activity, all that history is actually taking you far, far away from me. And now in this place where you're just kind of, as it were, in a crumpled heap, <laughs> you're learning what it is to actually finally just be still and know that I'm God. 
to know that you don't have to be seen by anyone else ever. That that lie of being famous or being rich or being in control or being powerful or being whatever, it is a false path. It leads to death. As the prodigal son shows us, it le- it's not a, those things aren't bad, but when that's what you live for, man, I felt God saying, son, I want my voice, my smile, my presence, my actual interest. I'm actually interested in you. I felt God say to me, Tom, I've really missed you. I've really missed you. And I feel like the father for some of you here, he's saying, I've really missed you. You're still my daughter. You're still my son. But you're so busy and the core, those things that are ultimately driving you are your way of trying to feel lovable because you've had your equivalent to what Tom said about growing up feeling somehow not enough. And all the time, all the time you've been so enough. I want you to feel that. I want you to actually feel, not just to think about to have it in your being. Whoa. Holy Spirit, hey, to have it in your being so that you can fail and you can be average and you can be overlooked and it's okay because your great cornerstone that's growing day by day by day is this actual friendship with a real, a real Jesus and, and his kindness leads us to repentance, his kindness. He's so kind. He doesn't want any of us to feel even a scrap of condemnation. There's no condemnation for the younger son. It's pure kindness. So if today you would just say, even as we finish now, just you might want to close your eyes. If you feel like, man, yeah, I feel a bit like somehow, maybe even with COVID, I've been thickly still more, but just my inner life has just been, my mental activity has been more frantic. And maybe some of those challenges and thorns that he's brought into your life and my life, which he intended to, to lead to a place of brokenness and humility, have, have actually just been met with fleeing or fighting or hiding right now. If you're feeling some semblance of just freedom and seeing it, maybe for the first time in a while, I just want you just in your own words, just say, Father, I want to come home to you. Father, I want to come home. Whoa! (sighs) Ah! (laughs) Oh! Maybe you're watching this and you're not even in this Zoom call, but you're just watching this and your father's saying, I'm the only person in this world who's going to be impressed with you. I'm the only person who's going to applaud you in your averageness because to me, you're not average. You're a miracle. Despite even your sin and at times your heart that's got evil in it, I still adore you, love you and died for you and rose for you. And I'm calling you to me. I'm calling you to know me and to just let go of proud and defensive coping mechanisms to let that need to be the best to be successful just let it go and i'll catch you this is my trustful invitation 
Oh, just even right now, just say, Father, Father, I want to, I want to know you, deep soul. If you've got a dry soul today, just even now, I pray, Holy Spirit, for rivers, rivers of refreshment to come. George, I don't know if you could get a song ready, brother. I think just we just want to say, Father, let rivers of refreshment come all across this call. Give us that confidence to just trust that you see us amidst the crowd. You know us by name. And we can, we can just rest in that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Let's, let's just keep our hearts just postured on, on Jesus, the kind one, the loving one who wants to meet us and to catch us. Thank you, Lord.